Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. I'll be reading one verse this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. This morning, I'll be talking primarily to parents and grandparents in the room. And the question I want to begin asking you is, how do we engage in hand-to-hand combat on the world's smallest battlefield, the child's heart? How do we engage in hand-to-hand combat on the world's smallest battlefield, the child's heart? Well, fortunately, Paul gives us clear instructions as parents on what not to do and also on what to do. Ephesians 6, 4, he begins by saying, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. He tells us what not to do. The NIV translates, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Uh, He's primarily talking to dads in this text. Moms, you can also learn from this. And the idea is that through dad's overbearing actions, he can push his child over the edge. He can push him away from God and not towards God. And a father's actions can easily lead his child towards anger, resentment, and bitterness. Colossians 3.21 describes it this way, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they become discouraged. So as I look at what not to do, I think about three things on how we can provoke our kids to anger, towards bitterness, and towards resentment. And those three things are we can be unreasonable as parents, we can be unavailable, and we can be unloving. First, we can easily lead our kids astray if we are unreasonable. Unreasonable dads are everywhere, and I, I once heard it said that there was a father who got angry at his kindergarten kid and he said son he said I can't believe you're doing this and he said quit acting your age and the son was like well dad I'm uh, in kindergarten I am acting my age (laughs) but the dad what he meant to say was son please act more like an adult if you think of it a father can set unrealistic expectations for his son or his daughter. A mom or a dad can ask their child to do things that are beyond their ability or beyond their capacity. We can overload our children with so many demands that it's impossible for them to complete all of those demands. We can lay so many expectations on them that they can't fulfill it. And I've seen this firsthand especially when it comes to sports. Yesterday, we spent all morning on the ball field. We went to a soccer game, and then we ran and rushed to a flag football game. And I found myself as the armchair quarterback. After the game, I told my son, Caleb, what, what did you do wrong? I noticed these things. And then I quickly said, okay, what did you do right? But I hear it all the time from dads especially when they just 
are very critical of their kids' sports and of their performance. And it may just not be sports, it could be academics. And I hear and see it all the time where we put pressure on our kids and we relive the glory days of our youth. And some of us, especially as dads, we might have been disappointed. We may not have won that championship. We may not have made that team. We may not have performed as best as we thought we could have. So fast forward 20, 30 years later and we're reliving those days in our kids and we're demanding them to perform like Jesus perfectly. And we're super critical of them. I, I've talked to high school students here in this church. And they have said, my parents expect me to get above a 4.0. And so they're studying three, four hours a night. Parents, these are high schoolers. Let them do that in college and graduate school. Now granted, doing homework's important. An hour a night's probably good and fair. But three, four hours a night, that's a lot. Again, I see that we, we focus primarily on the negative, and as we're critical and we're negative to our, toward our kids, what's going to happen when they get older? They're going to rebel, and they're going to be discouraged and even grow resentful towards us. So we must be very careful about setting unrealistic expectations on them and being unreasonable. That will provoke anger in them. The second way that we can provoke anger is by being unavailable. And I see this a lot with dads. And you've heard study after study talk about how, how there's devastation that occurs in the life of a home when a father is not there presently. Fatherhood.org tells us when there's a dad deficit, devastation takes place. Children in father-absent homes are almost four times more likely to be poor. Children who come from fatherless homes are five times more likely to have emotional problems and repeat a grade. 85% of the male prison population in America reported having no father figure in their lives. Young girls are seven times more likely to get pregnant as a teen without a father. Kids are two times more likely to drop out of high school, and they are also more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. This is when a father is not present in his kids' lives. I've seen so many dads get caught up into their work that when they get home, their tank is empty and they have little to nothing left to give. And they become somewhere else, Mr. Someplace Else, where he's not emotionally there for his kids. And when that happens, when dads are unavailable, devastation occurs. And I, I've seen it to where many dads, they, they don't know who their kids' teachers are. They don't know what their kids do after school. They don't know what their kids are involved in and even who their friends are. And what Paul is telling us here is <laughs> we've got to be there for our kids. We need to be present. And I like what Pat Morley said about this. He said, no amount of success at work will ever be adequate to compensate for failure at home. Let me say that again. No amount of success at work will ever be adequate to compensate for failure at home. When dad is not present, it will lead kids to rebellion. It will lead kids to resentment, to bitterness, and to anger. You may not know this, but President Lyndon B. Johnson, after he served his term in office, 
They had just had the inauguration for his, his successor. And he looked and he wrote down these words. He looked at his life and he said, I really wish that I could have poured more time into my kids and my grandkids than into me. Four weeks later, he died. Tragic, but it happens to many of us. Because as you think about it, men, we have a lot of weight on us. We're expected to perform at work. We're expected to perform at home. It can be daunting. It can be exhausting. We may be working 50, 60 hours at work, and then at home we got to be invested in our kids. But here's the thing I know about us as men. When we're challenged to do something, we want to rise to that challenge. And the Bible tells us as men, yes, we need to take breaks and Sabbaths for our own emotional sanity. And at the same time, we got to rise to the challenge. To be leaders in our home and leaders in our community. Because men, I know that we have, you have what it takes. You have what it takes. And you are what this world desperately needs right now in these crazy times. And what our kids need the most is for us to be available because no amount of success at work will ever be adequate to compensate for failure at home. You may not know this, but King David, he, he did a lot of things right and he did a lot of things wrong. When we think about King David, we think about his affair with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, but there's another thing he did wrong and that was he neglected his kids. There are two examples we know of of how he neglected two of his sons. The first son he neglected was Absalom. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and chapter 15. Absalom had just killed his brother for mistreating his, his sister. And King David, he did not confront his son Absalom. But instead, he neglected his son. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel 14. It said, The king David said, Absalom must not go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. King David had a big moment to confront his adult son for the crime he committed. But instead, he neglected his son, and for two years, he didn't see his son. Guess what happened to Absalom later in his life? Absalom conspired. He had a conspiracy to become king himself and to remove his father from the throne. He disrespected and dishonored his own father. Do you know why? I believe a big reason is because his father neglected him. You would think that after this example, David would have gotten the point, I don't need to neglect my kids. But right before he died, he made the same mistake with a different son. His son was Adonijah. And right before he died, David was supposed to make Solomon his heir to the throne, his successor. But he did nothing. He sat on his hands. And because he sat on his hands and his, his, his body was just giving out and he was on his deathbed... One of his sons, Adonijah, said, well, I'm going to assume the throne because dad isn't doing anything. And it said in 1 Kings 1, verse 5, Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father, David, had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? 
Solomon was supposed to be the king, not Adonijah. But Adonijah said, well, dad's not doing anything, so now's my time to step in. But David just kind of let it happen. He was very passive, and he neglected his son and correcting his son. It was his wife Bathsheba who (laughs) dragged him into his senses and said, Honey, what you're doing is wrong. You need to let Solomon become king and correct Adonijah for trying to assume leadership. And David ended up making the correction. But it took his wife to confront him on it. Again, David made no attempt to question or to discipline his sons, Absalom and Adonijah. And because of his neglect, it seemed to spawn further rebellion from these two sons. What happens when a dad and even a mom are unavailable for their kids? The kids turn rebellious. The kids turn resentful. The third thing that we can do to lead our, care, our, our kids astray as parents is we can be unloving toward them. Dads that are unloving will lead their kids to find their love elsewhere, to find love elsewhere. If a kid doesn't get affection from mom and dad, where are they going to go? They're going to find it elsewhere in places they probably shouldn't go. I think about how particularly a father can be unloving to his son or daughter. He could publicly embarrass them. He could verbally or physically abuse them. He could find fault and constantly nag about their minor infractions. He could even show favoritism of another sibling to another child. And he could even discourage his child. Moms can do the same thing by being unloving. But I've heard it said that a father's word or words can make or break a daughter. There is nothing like a dad and his daughter. And I want you to picture something pretty difficult. I want you to picture a teenage girl who is in love with a boy, and this boy tells her that she's ugly. Could you imagine how hard she would take that? Now I want you to imagine her dad saying that to her. You talk about a wound that would run deep. A wound that would not be recoverable. That girl would hold on to those harsh words for the rest of her life. Dads, what we say to our daughters can make or break them. We really hold a lot of power over them and over their hearts. So let's affirm them and not discourage them. In the same way, our, our sons, what do they need to hear from us as parents and as dads even? They need to hear that we believe in you. They need to hear... I'm with you. They need to hear, I love you and I'm proud of you. They don't need to hear, well, I can't believe you did this. And I can't believe you did that. And you should have done that. Now, there is a time for place for correction, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if that's all we do, we just beat them down. And as parents, we're called to build our kids up. So how do we lead our kids astray? (laughs) Well, we're unreal, unreasonable, we're unavailable, and we're unloving. That's what not to do, Paul tells us. But the good news is he gives us some positive things to think about with parenting. He tells us what to do. 
Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but look at this, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up is the first thing he tells us to do. He tells us as parents to do three things to encourage our kids. First, we are to cherish them. Second, we are to correct them. And third, we are to coach them. The words bring them up means to cherish. The Greek is ektrofer, which means to nourish one's flesh. To nurture, to cherish, to take care of your own body. And just as we, as moms and dads, take care of ourselves by feeding ourselves, by, by watching what we eat, by exercising, by taking care of our own bodies, so we are to take care of our kids. We're to cherish them. I like what John Calvin said about bring them up. He said, let them be fondly cherished. Let our kids be fondly cherished. Affirmation is the key to cherishing our kids, to affirm them constantly, to praise them, to encourage them, to lift them up. You know what we are to be as parents? We are to be dispensers of God's grace. We are to be dispensers of God's grace. We are to show affection to our kids. We're to hug them. We're to tell them we love them. We're to listen to them. We're to care for them. We're to nurture them. And our kids, they need to feel like they're a priority in our lives. So how do we make a ki our kids priority in our lives? Well, there's a few things we can do. Whenever they make improvement on their grades or in their behavior, in class or at home, you praise them for it. You tell them, add a boy or add a girl, great job. Whenever, whenever they take initiative to help mom clean their room or clean the, the dishes, as dads, you say, son, thank you for helping your mom. Thank you for not taking her for granted. Thank you for going above and beyond and taking initiative. We take our kids on dates. And before you get overwhelmed thinking, what kinds of ideas do I, do I need to do to, to keep my kids excited and to go out with me and spend time with me? It doesn't take rocket science. And it doesn't take a lot of money. In fact, if you just go to our website right now, ChristCove.org, there's a list of 50 ideas for the fall that you can do with your kids. I would encourage you to look over those list of things, and you'll see that they're very inexpensive. And they don't take a lot of time, but they're pretty simple. Our kids just need our time and our attention. You know, the other thing that I like to say is turn off your phone or set boundaries with your phone when you get home, especially at the dinner table. Don't be distracted by emails, by calls, by text messages when you're at the dinner table. When you're in the car, instead of being on the phone, which I don't think we're supposed to be on the phone anyway in the car, but when you're in the car, instead of being on the phone or instead of listening to music, take some time to talk to your kids. Ask them about their day. Just use that time wisely. The key here is to be present with your kids. And one of the most important things we can do other than praying for and with our kids is to serve with them. And I'm excited because this fall we're going to give you a lot of opportunities as families to serve with your kids. And not just to tell them to go and serve the community, but to go and model it with them. And to serve with them. And show them how to do things. I was leading a parenting retreat last weekend and one of, the, one of my fellow chaplain friends said that as his kid got older, he, he told his son, he said, son, go fire up the grill. And his son said, dad, you've never shown me how. And he said, whoa, was I convicted. It's little things like that where we just take for granted that we just expect our kids to know, but we just need to teach them those things. 
And that's spending time with them. Again, that's how we show affection to them. That's how we cherish them. Here's something I want you to take note. Don't give time to those who really don't need you at the expense of those who really do. Don't give so much time to those who really don't need you at the expense of those who really do. Remember, as a dad, this is what Jim Cofield says, as a dad, as a father, you are irreplaceable to your wife and kids. As a pastor, as a worker, you are replaceable. If I die tomorrow, you all would be fine. You'll have another pastor. I'm replaceable. But as a dad, as a husband, I'm irreplaceable. Keep that in mind, moms, dads. You are irreplaceable at home. And so love without reservation. The first thing we do is we bring our kids up by cherishing them. The second thing Paul tells us specifically to do is we correct them. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't just always affirm, because that doesn't always go over well. Sometimes we got to instruct and correct. we got to say, don't do that. Stay within your boundaries. Stay within the guardrails. We're constantly correcting and disciplining our kids. And if you don't discipline your kids, they will go wild. That's why you're seeing kids today just going crazy because they lack instruction and discipline in the home. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to teachers who've told me, Seth, you would be surprised how many parents come to me and they blame me for their kids' misbehavior. And it's their kids who are misbehaving in class, but the parents, they just don't think little Johnny can do anything wrong. And so they come and they blame me as a grown adult. Before we go and blame the teacher, let's give the adult the benefit of the doubt. Now, it might be the teacher's fault, and over time we'll find that out. But a lot of times it's your own kid's fault. Because after all, just like you, your kid is a sinner. (laughs) And so before we get mad at a teacher or a coach, we really need to hear the teacher and coach out. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And we might need to help teach alongside of them and tell our own kid and student, hey, You are misbehaving. Let's correct that misbehavior. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, it's really wisdom from a father to a son. And one of the main themes throughout Proverbs is that of discipline. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son, he will give you peace, he will bring delight to your soul. If you constantly reinforce the rules, especially when your kids are young, it will be for their benefit and for your benefit. As a parent, we can't randomly reinforce rules. It will bite you. You have to be consistent and constant, even if it's in the grocery store and it's awkward, you correct your child on the spot. You tell them no, because especially when your kids are at a young age, they need to be taught obedience, they need to be taught authority, because if they don't respect you, they won't respect anyone else, and they will disrespect God, because if they disrespect mom and dad, they're disrespecting God, and your kids need to understand that. There are boundaries and guardrails for their benefit, for their safety, for their security. If they go beyond those boundaries and guardrails, 
it will hurt themselves. They will hurt themselves. It will hurt them. So as parents, we have to constantly correct. And once again, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we find out about another man. His name was Eli, who did not correct his sons. His sons were improperly worshiping the Lord. They were also living immoral lifestyles. Immorality was what was happening. And Eli, the dad, just kind of let it go. He neglected it. And he said, I don't need to correct my sons. They're grown men. I don't, need to, I don't need to challenge them. And look what happened. 1 Samuel 3. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for the sacrifice or offering. He failed to restrain his adult sons. He failed to correct them and tell them, what you're doing is improper and immoral. It is wrong. And because of that, his sons quickly, soon after that, were killed. They, 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 were, they were dead. And Eli had grave consequences for the rest of his life. Even as adult parents, we're still called to correct our adult children if we see that they're veering off, if they're drifting away from the Lord. You never stop parenting. You never stop correcting. You know, one thing that I have found helpful as I'm raising little kids is the if-then formula. You can do it for both consequences and rewards. If you do your chores with a negative attitude, then... You'll have to clean up an extra bathroom. If you complain about your dinner, then you will lose your dessert. If you break curfew, you will lose one hour of curfew at your next three social events. If you're disrespectful to mom and dad, then you'll have to clean the dishes for the next week. Those are all consequences. Keep reinforcing the if-then formula. But you can also do it for rewards. If you help your brother with his homework, then you'll, go, you'll get to go to the movie with your friends. If you help clean the kitchen without being asked, then you'll get extra dessert. Now, here's the thing. You don't want to always do this for rewards because you don't want to enable your kids. There's certain things your kids just need to do. They need to do their chores. They need to do what you ask them to do. But there are other times when your kid may go above and beyond and you say, well done. Great job. Let's go and reward you for what you did. The key thing we have to know as parents is when they're really young, we got to teach them obedience and to be under authority. As they get older, we go from just giving them rules and enforcing those rules to really focusing on their character. Parenting is very hard work. And at the same time, parenting is heart work. So we don't just need to keep forcing the rules and enforcing the rules. As we're enforcing the rules, we need to be thinking about their hearts. So if mom is slaving away in the kitchen or dad is slaving away in the kitchen and your teenage kid is on, you know, on their iPhone or watching TV, that's a time, a, a coaching time where you can correct your child and say, or your teenager and say, hey, why don't you, why, why didn't you go and help mom as she was working in the kitchen for the last two hours? Uh, why didn't you do that? And that's a question directed right at their heart and their character. Because as they get older, you want to really focus on character building and not just giving them rules and correcting them. 
So what does Paul tell us to do to build them up? Well, we cherish them, we correct them. The third thing we do is we coach them. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word instruction really means to teach. It means to confront, it means to guide, it means to help. As your kid gets older and they hit the teenage years, they need to have the freedom to make mistakes. You need to give them that freedom, and that's very hard to do. But you got to give them that freedom so they can learn from their mistakes, and then you help coach them. Okay, what did you learn from that? How can, how can we learn from this? What can you do differently next time? That's what coaching's all about. But especially as your kids get, get older, you, you don't just want to enforce rules. You need to help guide them and coach them. And that's what Paul is saying here, instructing them in the ways of the Lord. I've heard this said that there are four stages to parenting. And I want you to write these down. The first phase or stage of parenting is caretaker. When your kid is an infant all the way to about two, three years old, you're their caretaker. You're making sure that they don't kill themselves by protecting them from eating everything. You are also just feeding them. You're holding them. You're loving them. You're changing their diaper. You're, you're doing all the things that a caretaker would do. As your child gets older, about age three, four, all the way to about eight or nine, you become the cop. And you're just constantly enforcing the rules, helping them understand authority, keeping them within the boundaries and the parameters that you've set for them. Because if they get beyond those boundaries, it's not for their good. It's, it, it will cause them harm. So you're a cop. You just constantly reinforce. And these are the years that are really that are hard. All the years are, are, are hard, but it's also a blessing. Then as they start to get into the preteen, teenage years, you have to make that shift from cop to coach. That is the hardest shift a parent has to make. Because they're used to just telling the rules, enforcing the rules, and now all of a sudden their kid begins to really think for themselves. They're not a machine. So you want to build them up as a young adult that has independence, that has the freedom to fail, the freedom to be vulnerable, the freedom even to be candid. You want to give them those freedoms, but you also still have to parent them and coach them and guide them. But so many of us, we're still in that cop phase, and we're giving the rules, but yet we need to shift into that coach phase to set them up for great success. And then I say 18 and up, the reality is, is a lot of people are staying home till they're 22. Hopefully not till you're 30. The goal is get them out of the house for their good, for your good, at 21, 22. It's for their good. And so by even 18, maybe 21, you get them out of the house, you let them fly, and you become the consultant when they become a grown man and a grown woman. And the consultant is, you're the wise sage. You're Gandalf the Grey. You give them wisdom for the rest of their lives. When your kid is 40 or 50, you still are the sage. You're not the friend. You're the parent, but your role is different. You consult them. You give them counsel. You give them wisdom. You give them advice. And it's up to them as a grown man and woman to take that advice. It's hard to make the shift from coach to consultant, but we must do that. Again, Paul says, raise them up in the instruction of the Lord by making sure to change as your kids grow. 
So I end with this challenge and encouragement. What I'd like to do is just have all the dads and granddads stand up. Dads and granddads, your role is critical in the formation of your kids and grandkids. What they need to hear from you is that you love them, that you're proud of them, that you're there for them. They need to hear from you that life is hard. You need to model that for them. You need to tell them you're sorry. Be quick to say that. Tell them you don't have it all together, but show them that you're strong. They need your strength. They need your confidence. They need your affection. Luke 1.17, John the Baptist, it says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice it said to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. If we want to see revival take place, men, we've got to turn our hearts towards our children and grandchildren and raise up this very important generation. God calls us to be those leaders. And I know you're doing it and you can do it. So stay faithful to that task. Please remain standing. Moms and grandmothers, stand up. Our children, grandchildren need you. They need you to show them what femininity is. They need you to show them what strength is. They need you to nurture them, to love them, to cherish them to care for them, to listen to them, to correct them. They don't need you to enable them. They need you to empower them. They need you to make those shifts as they get older in parenting, to go from cop to coach to consultant. You never stop parenting, moms. Proverbs 31 tells us, the wife of noble character looks well to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her husband or her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Mom, be that wife of noble character, that mom and grandmother of noble character that God calls you to be. Everyone else, please stand. If you're not a parent in the room, you're called to help. We are called Christ's covenant for a reason. We are a covenant community, and you've heard me say It takes a family, but I've also said it takes a church family. And if we want to see something special in our lifetime, we as a church need to play our part. We need to help those parents and grandparents who are raising their kids. We need to seek to be mentors to the next generation. We need to help them and love them and be that community that God has called us to be. Because after all, it takes more than a family. It it takes a church family. And if we want to see revival take place in our day, it's going to take all of us to play a part to help invest in this next generation.